The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, I love it in Flint. You're very astute. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor-comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom, how are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is uh, a New York Times bestselling attorney, art historian, and author, uh, author of a uh, new book called Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving, which is both a how-to book and a uh, fascinating story by... um, my guest this hour, Amy Herman, who joins me by phone. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, there's kind of an interesting story that that um, that prefaces this book. Um, what what exactly happened? How did this book come about? Well, I for my job, <laughs> I was listening to your introduction and. Uh, I don't really think of myself as a lawyer anymore. It's always funny to be reminded of that. But I travel around the world teaching people across the professional spectrum how to uh, enhance their observation skills and their communication skills by looking at works of art. And I realized after a while, uh, someone, one of my colleagues said to me, why are all these people coming to you? What do they all have in common you're dealing with? nurses and you're dealing with Navy SEALs and you're dealing with bankers and school librarians. Why are they all coming to you? And I had to think about that. And I realized everybody has a problem. Everybody that's coming to me says, you know, we have to fix this or we have to fix that. And I realized we're all looking at works of art or trying to look at works of art to solve some problem that we have. So I got the idea, why don't we write a book that puts into words and pictures how I'm trying to teach people to solve their own problems by looking at works of art. And have you formed a, a uh, an opinion on how looking at art um, sharpens up our problem-solving skills? Absolutely. And I would never believe it unless I saw it with my own eyes. And it's taken me a while to figure out why it works, but this is what I've come up with. The thing about art is everybody sees something. You don't have to know anything about art. You don't have to have studied art. You don't even have to like art. I'm using it as a fresh set of data because the truth is we're all so tired right now. Everything's broken. We're all exhausted. We're in the middle of this pandemic. And if I say to them, look, we have all these problems. Let's think about a new way to fix them. I can't give you the solutions, but I can give you a different tool to try to solve the problems. Let's look at works of art together. And by doing that and thinking about how the artist created that work of art, what process did they go through, gives us a new way to solve problems. Because 
let's face it, we all have problems to solve right now. Every time I turn around, something else is broken, literally and figuratively. Is there something about that visual nature or can you have the same experience watching a symphony orchestra or listening to music? I think you can. I think that the arts themselves, as a friend of mine who works for an intelligence agency says, neurons that fire together, wire together. And when you look at a work of art or you listen to a piece of music or you watch a film, you're using your brain in a way that you don't use every day when you're cooking dinner or talking to your family. You're, you're elasticizing your brain. And when you use those neurons in your brain to look at works of art and think about what you see and ask questions and discuss it with other people, you're using new parts of your brain that I hope will wire together again when you have to solve a problem. It's like you're calling on this secret reserve. Oh, remember I looked at works of art and Amy gave us this problem to solve and looking at works of art. Let me try it here. You know, my colleagues aren't getting along. Let me try a new approach rather than just chastising everybody. So the idea that neurons that fire together, wire together, art gives us this new resource, this new sort of secret storage of a tool to solve problems. I, I, I can't help thinking there, there have been a number of times when I, I was trying to think of something, remember a person's name, or uh -huh. uh, remember an event that happened, or a quote of some sort. And if I stopped trying to recall it and did something yeah. else, it would come to me. Is right. this the exactly. same sort of thing at, at work here by, by not concentrating on the problem and looking at something else that's, that's uh, mentally stimulating? Um, you're preparing yourself for the recall. In a way. In a way, because when you look at works of art and we talk about what we see and we ask questions, the difference is I don't want you to completely forget the problem you're trying to solve. You know, I, I believe, this is going to sound like a platitude, but I believe that the best ideas happen at the exit ramp of our comfort zone. So by taking people either to a museum or showing them works of art online, I'm saying, okay, let's go out of your every day. Let's go out of what you're comfortable with. But I always want those problems to be at the back of your mind so that you can go back to them readily and say, hey, wait a minute, I never thought about it this way. I never thought about, you know, for an example, when I have uh, groups of people look at a painting, I don't, sometimes I'll say, you know, tell me what you see. But often I'll say, tell me what you don't see. And they'll say to me, what do you mean what I don't see? How can I tell you what I don't see? I'll say, tell me what you think is missing from this painting. And the same thing with a problem. We know what resources we have, but let's identify what resources we don't have and try to fill the gap. It's like getting to the other side of something. So your example is very good. You say, well, when I'm, I stop thinking about something, I can see the solution. But for me, I just take people to a different place, but I want that problem hovering nearby so that they can readily go back to it and connect the dots with the methodology that I'm giving them. Does that I, make sense? It it does. Um, but but let me ask let me ask this, Amy. And and this is going to sound a little facetious, but but I'm going somewhere with it. Um, That's fine. Why why is this a book and not a bumper sticker or a Facebook meme? Because. 
for the very simple fact, I've been doing this for 20 years. And I don't have a single latitude or a single meme to sum up what I've been doing. I decided that working across the professional spectrum and working around the world with all these different people, we're on to something. We're living in such difficult times. Why not write a book about how looking at art has helped so many different people solve problems? And, you know, I identify different groups in the book, nurses and, um, you know, NBA security professionals and bankers. And you don't have to be one of them. But when you see how they're able to look at works of art to solve their problems, maybe the mother who stays at home or the caregiver or the person who works in the grocery store who has their own problems can take the same methodology. And I hate to use the F word, but it's fun. It's actually fun to look at something different that you've never seen before and think about different things. And as I said, everybody sees something. Nobody is, nobody's counted out here. Nobody, nobody can't participate. Everybody can weigh in on this because everybody sees something. Even people who don't have their vision, I've worked with visually impaired people, and when I describe a work of art, they can describe back to me what they envision what it looks like. So everybody can weigh in here. And I think it's really too reductive for a meme or a bumper sticker and I really wanted to share this wisdom because the wisdom doesn't come from me. It comes from all the people that I've worked with that have shown their elasticity and their willingness to go someplace else to learn to solve problems. Well, yeah, you've, you've been approached by uh, the FBI and NATO and the State Department and Navy SEALs, Scotland Yard. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, have, they, have they shared uh, examples of how using your method, they were able to solve some problems, or were those things too, um, too top secret to share? It's both. In some cases, they've come to me and said, look, this is the problem. This is the problem we're having, X, Y, and Z. And can you help us? And if I can't, I'll tell them. But in most cases, the methodology is, is readily applicable. But sometimes organizations will come to me and say, we have a problem that we can't tell you about because it's classified or we're in hostile territory. And they'll take the methodology and apply it themselves. So it's really both. Sometimes I go in, uh, I'll meet with supervisors or I'll meet with uh, heads of agencies and they'll tell me what the, what the issue is, why they came to me in the first place. And I tell them what I can do. And sometimes they, they won't be specific at all and say, we need you to help facilitate our communication because we're really not communicating at the level we need to be doing. And so I'll design my program accordingly. Sometimes I know the problem, sometimes I don't. I prefer to know as much as I can because I never like to give the same presentation twice. So I want to tailor it and I want to pick out the works of art. There are no words in the presentation. I have no slides with words or you know, models to memorize. I want this to become automatic. We all have enough to do already. I don't want to add to someone's plate. But I want to train their brain to be able to solve the problem themselves. So it's more of a vantage point than a PowerPoint. Definitely. I like that. It is more of a <laughs> vantage point than a PowerPoint. That's terrific. <laughs> um, you seem to, to uh, put the spotlight more on visual art. And, and, yeah. um and, and it almost seems like it's all paintings, but is it sculpture and, and music and other forms of art as well when you put together um, 
a presentation? I'm going to say it's all kinds of visual art because that's my expertise. I can't okay. pretend to be an expert in anything else. Uh, I do believe that looking at, at looking at works of art, listening to works of art, reading poetry, reading literature, I think it all helps us process and think about solving problems. But because I'm an art historian, I can only offer expertise in the visual arts. And I do use paintings, but I also love to use photography. And when I do these presentations in person, I always love to use sculpture because you can walk 360 degrees around a piece of sculpture. And depending on your vantage point, you're going to see different things. And I encourage people, the way we look at a sculpture is how we have to look at a problem from every single angle. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I heard somebody say once, and I don't know if I'm going to quote them um, I'm going to paraphrase at best, but that the art of sculpting was removing the parts that don't belong. That's terrific. That's terrific. You know what that reminds me of? Uh, when my son was little, my son is an adult now, but when he was little and I took him to a museum, he looked at this beautiful uh, sculpture of a woman in marble. And I explained to him that it was a block of marble and that the sculptor you know, carved the marble away. And he asked me, how did the artist know she was in there? <laughs> <laughs> and it's the same idea. It is the, the same idea. It is. How did he, you know, how did the artist know she was waiting in there to be revealed? And that's what artists do. They're so gifted. They have vision that the rest of us don't. But I believe everybody's an artist in some way. Like, I'm ferociously uncreative, but my creativity goes to looking at works of art for seeing different ways that, they can, that it can be used. So while I don't make anything with my hands, I use art in a creative way. So the idea of, you know, how did the artist know it was in there? I, I, I want to be able to use art to draw out. I want to channel that power because art is very powerful. And I want to channel that art into a practical application. I want people to be able to look at art and say, you know what? I really can use this to think differently. Well, that, that idea of, of removing the parts that don't belong is, is so germane to problem solving you know very often solving a problem is about removing the parts that don't belong or that may be in the way you know that brings up two ideas for me the first one is the title of every presentation that i give it's called the art of perception seeing what matters now and the second concept is my first book is entitled visual intelligence and what does visual intelligence mean it means distilling down everything that we see and come in contact with to that information that we really need, pushing aside everything else. My example, I live in New York City. If I walk a block to get to the grocery store, if I begin to process everything that I encounter, the people, the noise, the sirens, the traffic lights, the guy selling fruit on the corner, the puddle, the dog, I'd be exhausted by the time I got to the end of the block. So how do we really hone our visual intelligence to see what matters. And the same thing with a problem. How do we strip away all the extraneous information, all the ego, all the stuff that doesn't matter to get to the heart of the problem and decide what we're going to do about it? Amy, I have to take a break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk more? Happy to. Sure. Great. Amy Herman is my guest. Uh, the book is uh, Fixed. How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. <laughs> 
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom Say, objection. Hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. 
I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with art historian and author Amy Herman about her new book, Fixed, The Fine Art of Problem Solving, or How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. She joins me by phone. Hi, Amy. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, happy to. In fact, one of the ads that played talked about the value of going to listen to live music. (laughs) It Uh. talked about how it can just make you feel better and do something different, just what we were talking about. <laughs> well, exactly. And um, and and I think, and, and what we've been talking about, essentially uh, the, the point of this book is to explain to people how looking at uh, a piece of fine art, a, a masterpiece painting, it doesn't even have to be a masterpiece, just a fine right. piece of uh, uh, visual art, um, can exercise the mind in a way that helps with problem solving. And I have always argued that um, regardless of the academic discipline, that a, a, a real education must include the arts. I agree. I really, I, you know, I lament... Tom, and so many cuts in education, the arts are the first to go because people say, well, we need STEM and we need math and we need writing. Our kids need to learn. And I don't. And we got to have football. There you go. We (laughs) have to have football. But I think the way way I best argue for the value of the arts is that they help us develop critical thinking skills. And what is critical thinking? Learning how to ask questions. And learning how to ask questions is the key to problem solving. It's the key to helping us do what it is that we have to do in life. And so by going outside our comfort zone or looking at the arts and just using our brain in a different way, you know, math and science, they're all so important, but they're linear thinking. They're point A to point B. And what the arts do allow us to expand to point C and D and E and imagine what you'll what you'll see and what you'll incorporate into your daily living to help you do those linear things even more effectively. So it's, uh, you know, it's a hard argument. And, you know, sometimes it falls on deaf ears, but I'm a huge believer in incorporating the arts of all kinds into curricula. But doesn't your book in a way, um, well, maybe in many ways, make the case that that art education should be part of a well-rounded education? It does. It does, but it makes it indirectly because what I do in this book is I start out with a painting from uh, 1819, a painting from France, and it's a huge painting at the Louvre. It's 23 by 16. It's a huge painting. And I talk about all the problems that the artist encountered in trying to paint this picture. It was a political scene. It upended, um, you know, the government in France, and it made the it made the king look terrible. I mean, it was just so parallel to what's happening in our world and the problems that that artist encountered, and how by looking at how the artist 
paints the painting and tackles the problems one after another, painting the canvas and getting the subjects. It, it, he even went to the morgue to get decaying body parts so he could realistically depict dead bodies. All that problem solving, how we can break down our own problems. So by looking at art, yes, I think that it's indirectly saying we have to have exposure to that art. And the way we get exposure is by incorporating arts education. And I'm overjoyed to tell you that my first book that came out in 2016, I've written a young adult version of it. And it's called SMART, S-M, capital A-R-T, uh, Use Your Eyes to Boost Your Brain. And so it's really directed at kids 9 to 13 to think about how they see their world and how they communicate what they see and how they think about what they see. So if art education is going to fall short, I hope that my book can help close some of those loops. Can any old uh, appreciation of art produce the the results that you're going for, or is there a um, a map, a procedure, a a uh, a method of viewing art that paves the way for problem solving? Well, I think that you know my first. My first goal is to get people exposed to art, get them to start looking at it. But I do have a process to how we can look at it. And the first thing that I encourage people to do, and I know it sounds counterintuitive, but I tell people, don't read the label. You know, I watch people in museums all the time. I just stand there and watch them. And they walk up to a work of art, and they'll read the label for about, I don't know, five or six seconds. Then they'll look at the painting for two or three seconds and then walk away. And my goal is to tell people or to get people to recognize that they have a really strong inherent sense of observation within themselves. Look at the painting first. Decide what you see. How would you describe what you see? Because if you read the label first, you're going to look for what the label tells you. And I want people to start exercising that part of their brain to rely on their own observation skills. How can we better act based on what we see? I'll give you an example. My editor for the last book, he told me that reading my manuscript helped him save a life. I said, come on, that's ridiculous. You didn't save a life. He said, I did. I was riding the subway, and I saw a woman coughing. And this was pre-pandemic, so nobody had the fear of God when they saw somebody coughing. But she was fiddling in her purse, and he realized by looking at her coughing and looking at her uh, fiddling in her purse, she was looking for an inhaler. She was having an asthma attack. And so at the next stop, he got out of the car in the subway and he went to the conductor and he said, you need to take this train out of service. The woman in car 5216 is having an asthma attack and she's having trouble breathing. Take the train out of service. Someone needs to call EMS. And they did. And EMS came down into the subway station and they went right to the woman right in the car. And I said to him, come on, you wouldn't have done that if you hadn't read my book. He said, but you gave me the methodology to look around and take in the visual information. What was the car number? Where was the conductor located? How could I best get that information to somebody who could help rather than asking the woman who couldn't talk, can I help you? So the idea of visual intelligence, gathering our information and using it in the most productive way is the kind of, dot, or the kind of dots that I want to connect from looking at a work of art to solving a problem. Is there a specific vantage point that one should uh, practice when looking at at a piece of art? Um, and and what I'm thinking of is is these these people who will, you know, stand 
two or three feet away from a piece of art and then they'll walk across mm-hmm. the room and look at it from across the room is it is it different from uh, from one work to the next um, as to what the best vantage point to look at it is well I think what what that person did is really the there's no right and wrong way to look at art but what I encourage people to do is there's not to, is to say there's not just one way. If you're standing to the right of a work of art, walk to the left of it. Stand up close, and if you get too close, a guard will tell you. But go up close, stand back. See what the artist saw from all different viewpoints. And by doing that, you're doing what we have to do with a problem. We can't just look at a problem head on because that's, you know, we've gotten to that problem for a reason. We can't seem to solve it. And so by stepping back and looking in all, from all different vantage points, you're giving yourself the benefit at no cost of seeing things from another angle. Talk to different people. You know, when they say, I often tell parents that you can use this with your children. Don't only listen to what your children say when they come home from school. What aren't they telling you? And then when you talk to teachers or you talk to administrators about a problem, say, well, did you notice X? Did you notice Y? Did you notice Z? Nothing is just one-dimensional, especially in the world we live in. With social media and technology, nothing is one-dimensional. And so, again, I use art as the template to give us a, a, a model for looking at things from multiple vantage points. There's a, a story about um, <laughs> about you um, ending up in uh, you you um, called the police and eventually ended up at the Frick surrounded by <laughs> over a dozen armed New York Police Department officers yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. you asked them to describe the scene of the crime as it as as it related to a Vermeer that's right and you know I'll I'll never forget this Tom because I went out on a limb which I tell people to do all the time you know nothing ventured nothing gained and I had been training medical students at the Frick collection which is where I worked and I had been training medical students, and one night I was out to dinner, and I was telling my friends that these medical students had, you know, really limited vision. It was limited to kidney stones and hematomas and, and uh, MRIs. And one of my friends said, you know, why are you just doing this for medical students? Why aren't you doing this for people who really need observation skills? I said, like whom? He said, like cops. Why aren't you doing this for homicide detectives? And I thought, I don't know. Why am I not? So that Monday morning, I called the NYPD. I just cold called them. They're my local police department. Why not? And I said, look, I have a great idea. I trained medical students here at the Frick Collection to enhance their observation skills. And I think it would really be great for cops. Why don't you come to the museum? And I was transferred seven times. Nobody knew what to do with me. What do you mean you want cops to come to the museum? And finally, I got to the right person. And six months later, I had all new captains at the Frick Collection. And I realized I had to bring their world and my world together. So we looked, just as you said, we were looking at paintings. And one of the paintings that comes to mind is a painting uh, by El Greco of Christ 
chasing the money changers out of the temple. You know, he was pushing the sinners out of the temple. And I said to the cops, describe what you see here. And it was amazing because none of them recognized it as a biblical scene. And they pointed to Christ who was wearing a pink robe in this painting from the, you know, from the 16th century and said, I'd put a collar on that guy in pink. He's causing all the trouble. And it was amazing how they were able to transfer a scene, a biblical scene painted by El Greco to their world, pointing to the person who was causing all the trouble and inciting the mob. And so by making the paintings like crime scenes, here's a set of data. Tell me what you see. It was new information for them and a new application for me. And that's how my police program was born. And I started training police officers all over the world in looking at works of art. Because, look, they've all seen crime scenes. They've seen thousands of them. That's how they get their training. But here was something new, and they could use exactly the same skills in looking at a work of art. But doesn't, and but, you know what? It, but, was, it wasn't threatening. <laughs> there was nothing scary about it. Is, isn't the, the message there that very, very often our, our first look could be wrong? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that's why one of the lines that I always repeat is a first glance always deserves a second. Because what we see the first time may not be what's really there. It's amazing what, you know, why do you think we have such a problem with um, photo ID and witness identification? Because we swear we see something and then our brain develops this sort of bias. I'm sure I saw that one. And then in the lineup, they point, it's that one. And it's really very unreliable. We live in a very subjective world. And so I encourage people to look closely and look carefully there's a great line one of my a great latin phrase one of my colleagues introduced me to during the pandemic and the the uh line is festina lente to make haste slowly we're always in such a hurry we're all in a hurry there's never enough time but if we take the time to look at something mindfully and purposefully or have a conversation so we remember what was said it will have more value instead of having to go back and do it all over again. Make haste slowly. Doctors should do that with patients. Police officers should do that at crime scenes. We should do that with our children. Because if we make haste for the sake of making haste, we're going to end up doing it all over again. So it takes, it, it takes practice. It really does take practice. Well, anything... Uh, that enhances observation skills is is helpful to be sure. I had a uh, a social studies teacher who was trying to explain the difficulty in getting um, reliable eyewitness testimony, and in the middle of his, I guess you'd call it a lecture, um, a student came through the door and slammed uh -huh. some books down and hollered and screamed, maybe cussed a little bit, and stormed uh -huh. out and slammed the door. At which point wow. the teacher lifted a map and there were six or eight questions on the board. <laughs> so take out a That's piece right. of paper and it was, you know, what did she say? What was she wearing? And there were 30 different answers. Absolutely. And if it wasn't that eye-opening for all of you, oh, it's tremendously. no question, absolutely, that everyone in the classroom, you know you all saw the same thing, but when you had to communicate what you saw, 
you had you realized what vast differences were in your versions. Imagine at a crime scene how that happens. You have 10 witnesses, you're going to have 11 different accounts of what you saw. And this was something that had just happened in the moment, and very often in courts, it's six months later, a year later. Kudos to your teacher. Kudos I, to your teacher for doing that. It was, it was <laughs> you know, Amy, it was middle school, and I remember it like it was yesterday. You see what an impression it made on you, and I hate to bring it back to my world, but no, it was no, so that's... visual, and it was so in the moment, and look at the lasting impression it made on you, you know? Well, and, well, I, and, I and the, the stressing, the same thing. And, and stressing, um, you know, observation skills, and, and having the ability to pay more attention to your surroundings. Absolutely. You just reminded me of something too, Tom. Um, one of the most gratifying moments I've had in my work is I work with the FBI all over the country. And after I had a group of the FBI uh, come to the Frick Collection, they invited me to their field office. They wanted to show me their shooting range and they wanted to share photographs of cases that had already been solved that they thought would help me in my work. And I remember walking into this field office and, you know, it was a typical government building. It was cement and dividers, and it was a typical FBI office, if there is such a thing. And I walk in the room, and an agent across the room, tall, bald, had a big gun on his, on his uh, belt. He pointed across the room, and he said, there's Amy Herman. She showed me how to look at my first Vermeer. <laughs> and, I thought, and I thought, how many people get to walk into an FBI office and have someone yell across the room, she showed me my first Vermeer, and I thought it must have made an impression on him because he saw me and he remembered that painting. And more importantly, we talked about negative space in that painting and what's lurking in the background that you don't see right away. So my day was made, shall we well, say. Well, yeah, how often, <laughs> how often um, does, uh, you know, uh, uh, an investigator look at a, at a crime scene and think, what's missing? What isn't here? That is where my training fills in the gap, Tom. That's what I can only hope it fills in. And so when I get to work with these groups, it's my honor and my privilege. And I can only hope that by showing them art, if just one of them raises a question and says, you know, what am I not seeing here? Is there another way to look at this? Or asking a question of a colleague, then I feel like I've done my job and the art will take it from there. Crazy as that sounds. Well, this is this is absolutely um, amazing, and and such a fun uh, application of um, the role that art can play. I that's how I feel. I love it. I love my work. I love the fact that everybody can look at art and gain value from it, not just the pleasure of enjoying looking at art, but thinking about their own lives and how they can engage more purposefully and more deeply, and ultimately solve the problems that they're facing. Well, my guest is uh, Amy Herman. The book is called Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. Um, Amy, we, we just have a, a, a few minutes, uh, just three or four minutes left, and I always want to give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work past, present, and future. Do you have a website? 
Yes, I do, Tom. Thanks for asking. My website is artfulperception.com, www.artful, A-R-T-F-U-L, perception.com. And I also have a website, artfulbooks.com, which uh, talks about all the books that I've written. And I'm on social media at Amy Herman AOP. That stands for Art of Perception. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to let listeners reach out and learn more about my work. And and what can I share one last quote with you? Yeah, please. <laughs> I just I, I love to end interviews with this quote because I think it's it's applicable to anyone who's listening. Henry James wrote this back in the nineteenth century. He said, Try to be the person on whom nothing is lost. Oh, very try to nice. be the person on whom nothing is lost. And that's really what I ask of the people of my readers and the people that I work with is to be more purposefully, and don't let anything be lost on you. What's next for you, Amy? Ah, that's a good question. <laughs> I feel like writing a book is like having a baby, so I'm just <laughs> um, in post-labor right now. I'm still recovering from having a baby. But what I'm really looking forward to is getting back out on the road. I've been behind a screen for the most part for the last two years and getting back into the art museums with the people that I work with. You know, looking at art on the screen is the beautiful thing. I'm lucky that art translates. But I hope to get out and work with new groups, different kinds of groups, and also with people whose problems have been exacerbated by this pandemic. I hope that my methodology can help fill in those cracks. We've, we've suffered a lot of cracks and broken things during the pandemic. And so I look forward to getting back out there as some kind of normalcy returns and continuing with my work. Well, Amy, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Um, thanks so much for spending this time with me and the listeners, and keep up the good work. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. Stay well. All right. Take care. Again, Amy uh, Herman is a New York Times bestselling author, and uh, she is an art historian. She's uh, head of education at the Frick Collection, or was at, at, at one time. And uh, her new book is Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. Now, if you're listening to us on WFOV 92.1 LPFM, Our Voices Radio in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions, and my good friend Paul Herring. Um, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If... Uh, you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com. We have some messages as well. Coming up a little later in the show, I'll be talking with um, Alan Davey, who is uh, a um, senior pastor at uh, Weston Park Baptist Church, uh, an inner city church in Toronto. And he... Um, is also the author of a, uh, a new book uh, called Walking the Line, Embracing the Imperatives of Jesus. And tomorrow is Wednesday, and of course every Wednesday means Armchair Politics Day. We'll have our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki on the left and Henry Hatter on the right, and they'll be joined by um, Jasper, uh, well he goes by Jazz, uh, Jasper Martis, who is, uh, uh, works in the uh, communications office for the Democrats in the Michigan uh, State House. 
and he'll be uh, rounding out our roundtable discussion tomorrow. Anyway, don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila, tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not, is a major factor in dancing like a retard, may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them, also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people, and it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. 
alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. a type of meeting place has grown up throughout the country which is called a coffee house. There are many uninitiated people who have never been into a coffee house, I being one of them. Uh, we are seated now at a table across from which is a man uh, who seems rather depressed. Uh, sir, uh, you, you are depressed. Yeah. Uh, would it be getting too personal to ask you why? I'm not pretty. You are depressed because you feel you're not attractive. I'm not attractive. You're not good-looking. No, I'm not. Well, what would you say, sir? That's why if I'm I... mainly depressed. Well, may I, may, I, may I say something to you, sir? Yes. You are a very attractive person. You're as attractive as nine out of 15 people I know. <laughs> you're very kind. But you are. You're not you're an unattractive very, person. You're very sweet. But I, I know that the truth, and I face it every morning. You're a good-looking man, sir. I'm not a man. I'm a woman. <laughs> Oh, 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 I see. Oh, I, I, I beg your pardon. Uh, we'll, we'll go over to one of the other tables now okay. and see if we can speak. Uh, Goodbye. Thank you very Bye. much, sir. Uh, madam. Madam. Um, there's a gentleman sitting here wearing a pair of Levi's, a nicely laundered T-shirt, uh, looking very much like an actor. Uh, I might describe him as looking like a cross between... Uh, Marlon Brando and Joanne Woodward. <laughs> I, I want to explain that. You do have blonde hair. May we sit and talk with you, sir? Uh, if you are so uh, in your mind, too. <laughs> yes. Was I right, sir? Was I right? Are you an actor? Yes, I uh, have to be a uh, lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, I think, <laughs> I think, sir, I think you, can I check you on that? I think it's, uh, you mean thespian. Well, uh, is that what? Thespian. Thespian, actually. Thespian. Yes, yes. I'll never get that wrong again. <laughs> uh, sir, who is your... Who do you consider the greatest actor we have in America today? The greatest actor in America is Tallulah Bankhead. <laughs> I think she's well, she's a, she's a great actress. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean an actor-actress. I mean that she knows what she's doing up there, you know? Well, who else do you like? Who would you pattern yourself after? I would pattern myself after... I love that picture, The Fugitive Kind. I loved it very much. Very much. So, I tried to uh, be like Brando with my T-shirt and just look uh, very much like Joanne Woodward, who I love very much. I love her. Well, you know, usually when people... I also look a little like the producer. I love him, too. <laughs> Marty Giroux. Exactly. Yeah, Mar Marty Giroux. He produced that picture. You'll notice my shoes are exactly like his. <laughs> I love that picture yeah. that much well, sir, that I, I became everything in it. <laughs> I see. Sir, I think I made a mistake. You're not an actor. No, I'm not an actor, well, I'm but 
but, I'm, but I love to hang out here. Okay. Well, it was a pleasure speaking. Well, it was a pleasure almost to be an actor. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah. I've got to wend my way through the crowd. Oh, uh, get... good luck on your wending. <laughs> and goodbye. If I can do anything for you, you just call upon me, sir. Can I talk to you now? <laughs> no. 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 Okay. okay. I understand. You have to go to other people yes. on the record. I know that. Yeah, yeah. I know that. All right. I watched you before in the coffee house. All right, ladies. Goodbye. So long. I hope I'm an actor. <laughs> Uh, We're going to a corner of the coffee house now. Uh, on the walls surrounding this table are many, many paintings. There's a gentleman sitting here with a palette, palette knife, some brushes, some oils, and I imagine that he is the gentleman who painted these paintings. Am I right, sir? That is correct in your assumption. And the painting... Uh, you are totally correct. Uh, the painting... And impeccably dressed, if I may say so. Thank you. Thank you very much. A lovely tie. Thank you. Gradually blending into the color of your suit. You are always interested in color and design. Color is my life. I am color. Your name is... Uh, what is your name, sir? Corinne Corfu. <laughs> Corinne Corfu. Uh, you are yes. Greek. I hope I am Greek. I would like to be Greek very much. Well, you're, that is a Greek name, and you have a Greek accent. Yes. Well, then perhaps I am. <laughs> well, don't you know your don't you know your derivation? No, I do not know uh, my derivation. Gypsies stole me as a child. <laughs> a band of gypsies. And you were brought up where? I was brought up in the Persian Gulf, right here in Miami. <laughs> It's the Persian Gulf. No, it's a gypsy tea house. The rest Sir, is called I, the Persian Gulf. I would like to talk to you about your paintings. Now, yes, you certainly know it's my life. Color and art. I are, love art. They are very unusual. I notice that... God bless you for your perceptions. <laughs> I notice one... You also... Uh, you sculpt, too, I notice. There's Main, some, uh, sculpting and painting. All the arts. Uh, there is a, a metallic sculpture there that is very interesting. Yes, metal, metallic. What do you call that? It's just a series of wires uh, in a grid-like effect. What oh, you, you mean above the door? Yes, what do you call yes, that? Yes, that's called the air conditioning. <laughs> Sorry, sir. I did not uh, make that. No. The, the feathers, the feathers company made, but it's very beautiful. Yes. Your paintings are very abstract, I noticed. Yes, but they don't blow air out. So <laughs> that, um, that the machines. No. May I ask you about some of the paintings? For yes, instance, you certainly may. That painting there that is entitled The Gull on a Hot Rock. Yes. Now, I don't see anything on that but a bunch of little specks. Yes, well, I saw the girl on a hot rock from over five miles away. <laughs> oh, I see. I was see. standing on a cliff. That's why I painted in the perspective, the three little dots. Now, uh, getting closer, sir, I'm, uh, may I examine a little more closely? Certainly, not too close. Yes. yes. Now, that is not paint those dots. They look like, that's, those are flies. Yes, sir. they are. They're flies. But you didn't paint that. Those are real flies. No, I took them, uh, caught them in my hand until the air was out of their bodies and they died. <laughs> And then I, uh, you pasted them on the little dots of blue and put them on the dots, and, and they represent the gold on the rocks. I had to kill them. If I had not killed them, if they were not dead and glued to my picture, <laughs> then I have no picture. <laughs> they fly away, I got nothing, Charlie. I see. I'm in the dark. Well, I excuse you. What are you going to buy? Well, sir, may I ask you about this particular abstract? Yes, they're you mainly impressionistic, post-impressionistic, yes. pre-impressionistic, and impressionistic. <laughs> yes, this one is more of a, an academician type of painting. No, it's not. Well, for instance, it's very graphic, it's very graphic. Yes, it's, it's it, very graphic. The, it's very graphic. The, <laughs> it's a draftsman-like quality. The spaghetti looks like spaghetti. The limp salad looks like limp salad. And the garlic oh, bread oh, looks oh, like garlic bread. Oh, oh, no. That's not a picture. That's my supper. 
I, I, it happens to be resting on a frame in my easel. Oh, that's my dinner. I eat that. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. sir. It looks... Do you like... Wait a minute. Do you really like it? Well, it is. Do you think it looks like the a... The composition a is rather... Of, uh, yes, I thought it was thickly painted. I tell you what. <laughs> if you really like it... I can lacquer it up and give it to you for forty dollars. No, I'm afraid. I'm no. afraid I wouldn't want to take your All deprive right. you of your supper, sir. How about just a coffee and cake? <laughs> Maybe not for twenty dollars. No, sir. I'm... Give me a dollar and a half for the coffee. <laughs> sir, I'm really not interested. Give me forty cents. You can have. It. All right, here's forty cents, sir. All right. Thank you very here's the much. Coffee and cake. Nice working with you. Yes. Sir. I hope you come in again. I will, sir. God bless your can tie. I... I don't want the coffee. No, sir. you want the picture with the flies? No, you just keep it. Give that. me a dime. <laughs> you can have it. I kill more flies. What the hell is it? <laughs> In a corner of the coffee house is a gentleman sitting with a very, very strange instrument on his lap. Uh, sir, may we speak with you? Hello. <laughs> uh, what is your name, sir? May we get your name? Uh, my name is uh, Charlie Grape. Charlie Grape Yes uh, Do you perform here at the uh, coffee house? Yes, uh, on occasion I do And then they uh, they kind of get mad at me And then I don't I think I can get permission for you to play for us I'd Wait, like can to... you? Yes uh, <laughs> I, I would It's the first time I've ever gotten permission here just kind of... We'd certainly like to hear a sample of your music Certainly. Let me just get tuned up. I'm trying to find an A here. There it is. There it is. <laughs> Got it first shot out of the box. My A. Now, what are you going to play for us? Uh, 22 Men. All right. For the record, 22 Men. 22 Men. Here we Sung go. Sung by Charlie Grape. Here we are. <laughs> I get mainly A out of it. <laughs> I don't get more than A out of it. Twenty-two men fell down and hurt their knees. Twenty-two men fell down and hurt their knees. Twenty-two men fell down, down to the ground. Twenty-two men fell down and hurt their knees. Would you like to hear the release? Do you have one? Yeah. Now, 22 men fell down and hurt their... That's not a release, sir. That's the same as the... Uh, yeah. Bridge. Okay. Okay, how about another completely different song and a new tune? Yes, I'd Okay. Like. Can you make it up on the spot? I certainly can. It's my best part. This is extemporaneous. Ex yeah, whatever. 22 German soldiers hurt their knees. <laughs> 22 German soldiers... I think sir, you know sir, that, no, too. It's yeah. very similar to the other one. Yeah, well, how does it differ? It differs in the fact that the first 22 men were not German soldiers. <laughs> well, is this the enough? second 22 men are German soldiers. Well, it's the can same. You, can you play... It's the same uh, that they hurt their knees. That's right. You caught me there. Yeah. Can you sing that. something completely different? Okay. Completely different. You know, the uh, the Calypso balladeers make up songs right on the spot, topical songs. Yes, they can do. Can you do that? I'll try to. Okay. Okay. 22 Calypso men. Is that what you meant? No, I meant something topical. Something topical? Yes. I'll try something topical. Let's see what's happening in the world today here in our great nation. Got it. Big Dick Nixon hurt his knee. Big Dick Nixon hurt his knee. <laughs>
is another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 